Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Turkey. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Carl Knappitz joins the show for a conversation that's going to explore what scholars know about what the urban center of Pelicastro Crete was like during the Bronze Age. Dr. Knappett is an archaeologist who specializes in the Aegean Bronze Age, and in particular Minoan Crete. He is a professor and Walter Graham Homer Thompson Chair in Aegean Prehistory in the Department of Art History at the University of Toronto, based in Canada. He has written many publications over his career, including this monograph as an example. He is author of Aegean Bronze Age Art, Meaning in the Making. That was published by Cambridge University Press. And his team is completing a monograph on a 2013 to 2015 excavation project at Palacastro, Crete, in which he was the director of. And that monograph is going to act as a report on the project. And Professor Napa joins the show today from Canada. Welcome to the show, Carl. Thanks uh, very much for having me, Andrew. It's good to connect with you, Carl. So where is or was Palacastro? So Palacastro is... Uh, on the eastern end of the island of Crete, which is this long uh, island about 300 kilometers um, across uh, the south of the Aegean Sea. So it's right on the eastern end, and it's a, in a very nice coastal location, and actually uh, not that far from um, the north coast of Africa, and actually not that far from Egypt. If someone were to go there today, and we're speaking about Placastro, during the Bronze Age, but if someone was to show up there today, they're in Eastern Crete, what would they see? So there's a smallish village um, of about a thousand people um, called Palacastro, and that's a couple of kilometers inland. And then once you drive through the village, you go through a kind of a sea of olive trees, um, many, many olive groves, and then you would get down to um, the coast, which has quite long, sandy beaches. And, um, and this uh, very significant archaeological site, um, which is almost on the coast and uh, covers quite a large area and would have been quite a significant town in the Bronze Age. Um, and that would have been the period of the greatest occupation um, of this this part of Crete at any point in history. I sometimes ask why a scholar is interested in the particular topic that is their, their, their bailiwick. And I feel like, and I, I oftentimes have asked that question at the end, but I feel like it's almost out of place to ask it at the end in this case. So I want to ask it now. What, what has interest you in Palacastro archaeologically for so many years? What about, what about this site um, had you decide to spend a lot of your professional time on? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I started working on Crete um, a number of years ago, uh, partly through uh, my uh, supervisor for my PhD, um, getting me very interested in, in questions about the, the society and uh, the kind of political organization of Crete um, in the Bronze Age. And I started pursuing questions about the society, um, working at sites more in the center of the island, like Knossos 
and uh, Malia. And I guess it became more and more evident to me over time that the far east of the island was potentially uh, run or organized along different lines to the center of the island. And there's this great, even though it's just one island among many in, in, the, in the Mediterranean, even within this island, it seems that um, there was quite a lot of regional variation. And so the west of the island, the center, the south, the east, um, may have been doing things quite differently. So I, I guess it's that, that sense of uh, regional variation that, that drew me to, to Palekastro because it does seem quite different to, uh, from many sites in the center of the island. Okay, and we could probably uh, work our way into some of those, those details in the conversation today and understand those, those points more. Um, where does it get its name, its current name from? So Palekastro, where does, where does that name come from? It just means uh, old castle. So Palio is the Palais bit, and Castro uh, means castle. And it doesn't refer to the ancient Minoan site uh, where there's nothing uh, particularly that resembles the castle. And it was, it was buried until you know, just 100 years ago. But there's a, an outcrop near the sea, uh, which did have a castle-like structure on it. So it probably comes from that. Um, is it known when that name was was given and if we're speaking about the bronze age there there was the minoans the mycenaeans were there at some point there could have been uh different groups there um is it known what they would have called this uh this this village during the bronze age not really no i mean there are a few ideas but no we don't really know uh what it would have been called um it's quite interesting that some sites are some settlements are named in the linear b texts and these texts are a very early form of greek um but palakastro is not one of those sites um it sort of seems to fall outside of the ambit of um the sort of the main central sites uh which are named in these linear B texts. Okay, and I actually um, wrote that down as a question, so I can I can cross that one off if it was mentioned in the linear B at all. Um, okay, so okay, so it's it's it can, okay. So in so there's a village in modern times called Palakastro, and then and then the, and then what we're speaking about is a is a different site in the area, but it's not. It's not. Um, it's not within that. With within the proper municipality of what it would be, Palakastro uh, today. Can you can you share again how far apart the, uh, it is? And so so what we're talking about is a is a site during the Bronze Age, a village, and then and then there's also speaking about in contemporary in modern times rather. There there's a village today, but there's two different there's two different sites in the same area on the eastern island of Crete. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so um, we call the ancient site Palakastro um, due to its proximity to the to the modern village Palakastro, um, and we don't really know what it would have been called in the Bronze Age. And Palakastro, the village today, is is really just a kilometer or two uh, from the ancient site. I I should say that it's not really just 
one site. Uh, we talk about, you know, the ancient site of Palakastro, but it actually includes the um, main settlement, which we also sometimes call Usolakos. Uh, uh, that's the sort of the toponym, that's the, the particular area where that settlement is. Then there's the Peak Sanctuary, which is on a, a mountain just above it, which is called Petsofas. And then there's a series of cemeteries around the settlement. And then there's a refuge site um, called Castri. So it's actually a kind of a, a collection of, of, uh, of sites. And that's um, part of what makes it uh, very special is to have all these different aspects to it, um, refuge sites, cemeteries, big settlement and, uh, and peak sanctuaries, um, all, you know, pretty well preserved in this, uh, in this incredible environment. Okay. Can you share more then in the context of the Bronze Age, what Palakastro was like, what scholars know about it? Sure. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable place because it's a, it's a large town. I mean, it's hard to be sure of its extent, but it could easily have had a few thousand uh, people living there at its peak. Um, and what's especially interesting about that is that normally on Crete um, in the Bronze Age, settlements of a certain size always have palaces. And that's to say, a kind of central building and a central institution that, that runs things. Um, so there's a kind of a hierarchy and there's some people at the top who inhabit and use um, the, the palace as their base. And they're the ones who are sort of, uh, you know, creating the roads and, you know, making decisions. Palakastro does not have such a structure. It does not have a palace. Um, different excavation projects have been looking for it for 120 years, um, but so far it's, um, it's not been found, uh, which is very intriguing because it either means uh, we've just not been looking in the right places yet, um, despite a lot of investigation, or it means that there never was a palace in the first place, um, which would make it completely unique on the island. Do you have a hunch if a palatial, if you had, if a palatial building existed at, at some point? I think the jury's still out. Uh, certainly some colleagues believe that it has to be there and hasn't been located yet. If that's the case, I really am out of ideas, <laughs> out of hunches as to where it might be. Um, some colleagues are beginning to come around to the idea that it was just organized differently. And there's a pretty interesting feature about the settlement is that there are these big town blocks. And so um, quite a big chunk of the town consists not really of individual houses, but of these larger blocks or almost insulae, which, which are, you know, up to a couple of thousand square meters and an area that size could have housed 50 or 60 people. And so people have started wondering if these are sort of for extended families, for clans, for something like that. And that therefore society was just organized at this site um, a bit more evenly, um, 
in a more egalitarian fashion without this kind of hierarchy and that it was just uh, different. And this is perhaps something to do with its relatively isolated location in the far east of the island, far from the big centers like Knossos. So these town blocks that you're speaking about, are they like large communal buildings? Can you explain more what's known about these, these town blocks? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them were excavated in the early 1900s and excavations then maybe uh, went a bit quicker and, um, you know, didn't have the detailed kind of analysis that we have today. And they haven't really been, you know, fully uh, published. So we don't have all the evidence we might, um, but they cover um, these significant areas and they seem to have different kinds of uses within them. There are things like olive presses and and uh, maybe uh, communal halls for, you know, where more than just four or five people could have gathered. And so although the evidence is not quite complete, it does seem that one could have had larger than nuclear families uh, living in them. Um, and there would have been various advantages in that probably in terms of you know, farming the land and uh, having um, you know, more potential to, to farm wider areas. Perhaps if there was an agro-pastoral economy, which seems to be the case, um, it would help to have you know, more hands available to, uh, to, to herd uh, sheep and goat. So it's, it's sort of feasible from an economic standpoint. And there are, there are models for such forms of organization from, let's say, the Balkans in the 19th and 20th, uh, early 20th centuries. So you mentioned, I think you mentioned that these town blocks, there's instances where up to 60 people could have been, I don't know if you said the word uh, living in them, but, I, but that, this is part of my question. So you can, you can um, bring it up in your response as you see fit. So is there speculation that in some of these buildings, there was upwards of 60 people that, that inhabited? So these, these were, these were their, their places of residence? Yes, yeah, so it looks like people would have, would have lived in these town blocks. Um, they would have also been the location for, well, all kinds of activities, maybe craft activities um, for, you know, preparing meals, for storing uh, food stuff. So, um, yes, I think a range of activities. They are probably at least two storied. And of course, we're not really finding the upper story, which may have been where a lot of uh, living happened, a lot of dwelling happened. Um, so, you know, one can imagine maybe sleeping quarters on an upper, upper story um, or even on a terrace. But certainly we find storage, uh, craft activities, you know, cooking pots suggesting, uh, you know, food preparation, things like that. Before we started, I, w I wanted to clarify the, the period that we were going to speak about today. And I asked if uh, it made sense to zoom in more to a particular period of the Bronze Age, like the late Bronze Age. And you made a, an important point that the, this settlement uh, goes back, and, and, and again, please bring this up in your response as you see fit, um, to 3000 BCE, and then all the way to around, to around 1100 BCE. So 
So can you speak? Can you speak about that? Because that that is a uh, quite a long period of time for a settlement to exist for. There's at least a couple thousand years there. So how far back? Because we're speaking about the Bronze Age. So does Palacastro go back? Do scholars believe that it was a settlement even before the the Bronze Age? And can you clarify the if Palacastro existed all through? The, bron- the Bronze Age. Yes, Palacastro um, is occupied over a very long time span, for you know, two millennia or so. Um, the earliest occupation doesn't seem to be on the main town site. So from around 3000 BCE, we have really the odd sign of occupation on surrounding hills. And that might go back even earlier um, to maybe 3500 BC. But the main town site seems to be first occupied in a phase we call early Minoan 2A, which is around 2600 BC. And from that point on, there's a gradual steady growth over time. I mean, it really is a hamlet and then a small village um, through to um, you know, around 2000 BCE, and then it slowly grows. And by about 1700 BCE, that's the time when we can perhaps start talking of a town because of its size, but also certain public works. There seem to be planned roads and uh, more substantial architecture, things like this. So in the centuries after about 1700 BCE until around uh, 1400, let's say, this is when the town gets um, to its largest extent, it gets quite big. Um, you know, it has a really impressive kind of road system and um, drainage and monumental architecture. So it's, it's really important to recognize, I think, um, that it has this long history of continuous occupation uh, for so long. And then it, it carries on, there are a few wobbles, if you like, but until around um, 1200. And then that main town site is abandoned um, in the 13th century BC. And then still the area is occupied um, because a small subset of that that settlement, um, a smaller uh, number of the population then go and live um, for a brief period on this this, uh, outcrop uh, called Castri which is right on the sea and is kind of uh, defensible with its steep slopes. And they live there maybe for a century at most. And then, then there's um, complete abandonment of the area. When the Minoans occupied Crete primarily, so in that period of time, do scholars believe that this site was Minoan? Yes, yeah. I mean, all of Crete um, from 3000 to uh, you know, 1100, uh, any, any site on the island really shares the same material culture. And you know, they all clearly participate um, in, this, in this shared culture. There are a few exceptions where during the early Bronze Age, there are a few sites that seem to look to the Cycladic Islands and share some of that material culture. But by and large, we can talk about, you know, a shared Minoan culture 
um, across the island. Nonetheless, there are these regional differences as well. And that's kind of what's really interesting, the sort of dynamic of, you know, this shared Minoan culture and, um, and yet these regional uh, variations where, where not every community is really doing exactly the same thing. When the Mycenaeans arrived in the late Bronze Age in a large way on the, on the island and began to occupy it, did Palekastro change in any way based on the evidence? The impact of the Mycenaeans on the island is really, really interesting and is uh, the subject of quite some debate at the moment. The sort of the standard narrative of Mycenaeans invading and arriving. Um, if that's correct, it really only holds for some parts of the island. And you can't really talk about Mycenaeans arriving in East Crete. Um, Palakastro um, has very few elements of what you might call Mycenaean uh, material culture. So the sorts of things that we see at Knossos, where, you know, this is where people talk about uh, Mycenaean incomers, are, you know, certain kinds of pottery, uh, warrior burials, and, uh, well, linear B as well. At Knossos itself, we really are wondering if, 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 um, if it's quite as simple as, as the Mycenaean invaders, after all. But certainly for Palakastro, we have very few of those features and there is some impact of the changes at Knossos on the far east of the island but um, talk about Mycenaean Palakastro is, is a bit tricky it stays it maintains a lot of its earlier Minoan character okay and the Mycenaeans beginning to occupy Crete in the late Bronze Age has come up on the show in the past, and that's probably partly why it was particular around using the word occupy as a, as a word of choice with that, with that question, because I understand that uh, there's not consensus or there's not clear evidence as to all the circumstances around that occupation. You mentioned that there seem to be some differences with governance structure, uh, and it's come up in the way you describe the buildings, for instance, there's not a, and there hasn't been a palatial building um, found up until this point. Is there anything you else you want to say about their governance structure that you feel is uh, either very relevant or distinguishes them from other parts of the uh, Minoan civilization during the Bronze Age? Sure, it's quite hard to talk about. Um governance uh in this prehistoric period um we have to well we do we do what we can to talk about the political um system or, or the nature of political organization um one aspect of that is territory so you know one looks at uh the organization of the of the town kind of internally but then a town implies you know a wider territory from which it would draw in some way whether um, economically or or in other ways uh, as well so at the center of the island we we tend to believe that 
site like Knossos uh, would have had some kind of surrounding territory. It's pretty hard defining the extent and nature of that territory, but it seems reasonable to say that. Malia, another palace site in the center, again, seems like it had some sort of uh, territory. Palacastro, I mean, there's an immediate um, kind of surrounding area. Um, it's immediate environs, but it's pretty hard to talk about a territory. Um, and that's the case for other East Cretan sites, uh, which are pretty close by within you know, 15 kilometers or so, like Zakros and Petras. Um, were they more towns with just an immediate catchment and not really a territory to speak of? It's, it's, it's kind of intriguing, but that seems to be uh, perhaps another difference. It's not just the town that might have been organized along quite different lines, but also this, this sense of a, of a territory as well. Was Palekastro in the period that we're speaking about fortified in any way? And have, have you or other scholars observed if it, if it appeared based on archaeology, if it had a, if it, if it had a need to defend itself? It doesn't seem so. No, it doesn't seem to have been fortified. Um, this is again another, you know, interesting question that we think about across across much of the island. You know, the the degree to which uh, major sites were were fortified or defensible. Um, you know, the story goes that you know uh, Minoan Crete uh, was able to enjoy this period of great prosperity, um, and you know, partly perhaps because of its its uh, you know its boats and able to sort of keep the peace uh, in that way. And then was able to place these sites in areas um, of great um, agricultural potential or, or economic um, potential in some way. That narrative is fine because a lot of these sites, Knossos, Festos, Malia, and, and Palekastro, don't seem to be placed in, in any significant way for defense. I mean, in, in great contrast to the, the mainland Mycenaean centers like Mycenae and Tiryns, which have defense as such an obvious uh, feature. Um, that said, it's not like we don't have any defensible sites on Crete. Um, and the mountains surrounding these sites have, have numerous um, rather small defensible sites on the whole. Um, so it's, it's definitely a feature. The other thing to recognize is that um, it depends a lot on the period. So maybe through the neo-palatial period, which is this period of great prosperity from about 1700 BC, um, maybe they don't feature very much. But in other periods, like the very end of the Bronze Age, you know, the, there's no shortage of defensible sites one could find uh, when there's this particular phase of, of, uh, of strife and uh, and conflict. But we also see um, some of this happening a little bit before 1700 BC and then way back in around 3000 BC. So intermittently, um, defense is definitely a concern. But you know, for the main town sites, one wouldn't say in Palacastro that, that it seems to have um, been anything that was on, uh, on anybody's mind particularly. 
So when it comes to sustenance, how did they feed themselves? So where did they gather and derive food from? And how did they access water? So, yeah, the, the uh, sustenance, you know, what they're feeding themselves, their economy is, is um, pretty interesting. I'm not, I'm not, not going to suggest it's, it's continuous through to today by any stretch, but it's, it's not so different from what you see today uh, as it happens. Um, the olive is very dominant there today and seems to have been a very important resource. Um, we, we can see actually in some recent pollen analysis from some cores that this seems to have been the case even from the fourth millennium BCE. So way back in the 3000s, the olives seems to have been a feature of the environment and then seems to have been just increasingly exploited um, over time through the early and middle Bronze Ages. So that's one really important aspect. And then I mean, then there's legumes and, you know, some barley, some wheat, uh, these kinds of things. What's also really interesting is that the bone evidence, the faunal analysis that we've been able to do on the site really points to sheep and goat being really, really key throughout. So 80 to 90% of the, of the animal bones found are sheep and goat. So cattle and pig feature, but they're in a, real minority. Um, so we can we can imagine a kind of a agro-pastoral economy of, of with heavy emphasis on, on olive um, and on sheep and goat with you know vine, wheat, barley, legumes uh, and uh, you know, some other resources as well. What do you think or know were the top two or three products that they produced in this period of time that we're speaking about for the purpose of trade. So trading with other communities, perhaps on the island. Um, please bring on, bring in uh, international trade if if you're aware of their products showing up in parts outside of the the island. What were the top two or three products that they were producing for trade? That that's a great question. The trade products that would have been um, important, and one has to think that uh, the population would have traded uh, with other places, given its maritime location and uh, you know, maritime connections being being so important in this period. Um, the main products probably would have been organic. So we can imagine textiles having been um, a really important product uh, with all the sheep and goat. Um, and then possibly they would have been able to dye these textiles with a purple dye that comes from a particular shell, uh, which is uh, often called murex, but um, it's been renamed hexaplex trunculus. This uh, we have enormous, um, uh, really strong evidence for at the site for processing this, this shell to make this purple dye. So they might well have taken their sheep and goat products, these uh, the, the wool to make these textiles, maybe dyed them, and then this could have been an important trade product. But of course it's it's organic, so and and has you know disappeared over the over the millennia. So so we don't have really direct evidence for that. Clearly they were uh, weaving um, because we find all the all the loom weights uh, that were used on the, the particular uh, looms that they would have used. 
So we can we can put the the evidence together and suggest this is what was happening. All the olive as well. It's very likely that um, they were making olive oil, and there are maritime transport containers of different kinds, amphorae, syrup jars, that um, in all likelihood would have been filled up and then and then shipped. These containers are found all over the East Mediterranean, not specifically in fabrics from Palacastro, uh, but it's certainly imaginable that Palacastro could have exported um, such wares. And we're talking about these two organic uh, products, and they would surely have been very significant uh, exports. So in the other direction, what are the top two or three products from other civilizations that show up at Palacastro? Well, given the coastal location of the site um, and its proximity to a number of other Eastern Mediterranean cultures, you might well imagine that there would be lots of evidence of Palacastro for connections uh, elsewhere. But strangely, we do not have as much evidence uh, for these kinds of links as, as might be expected. Uh, there's one really striking example, though, for connections with Egypt in particular. And this comes in the form of the Palacastro Kouros, which is this uh, beautiful, striking figure. Uh, it's about 50 centimeters tall. It was found in the late 1980s during excavations. And it's made of hippo ivory, uh, mainly. And this uh, evidently uh, can come from the island itself and must come from North Africa. And, and so this uh, imported material was probably fashioned locally into this um, incredible sculptural piece. Uh, this statue, this figure, also has pieces of gold um, as part of its uh, uh, construction, its manufacture. And the gold has to come um, from outside as well. So we don't have too much gold at the site, uh, but uh, this must have been also imported from um, probably Egypt. Another metal find that we have perhaps more abundantly at the site is bronze. And this is a copper alloy uh, composed of copper and tin. And neither of these materials exist on the island of Crete. So these two uh, must have come from outside tin, possibly coming from as far away as Afghanistan. So these would have required quite far-flung exchange networks, possibly directly connecting Palacastro to these other areas of the East Mediterranean and beyond, but also possibly uh, through a, a sort of bigger site like Knossos, which could have acquired these kinds of materials and then kind of redistributed them uh, within the island. So it's, it's these kinds of uh, materials that we see imported uh, to Palacastro that testify to these wider connections, um, but there's not as much imported uh, pottery, which is often a good indicator. It's not as much imported pottery as we might expect from um, the rest of the East Mediterranean. Okay. Is there anything that we haven't covered in the conversation today, Carl, that you want to make sure gets in this 
episode today? Or is there something we covered, but you want to go back to it and emphasize it inside of a closing context? I think there's a couple of things. Uh, one is the uh, the impact of Thera, the whole Thera and eruption question um, is quite interesting. And then the, the the new project, we have an underwater component to it, and it would be quite fun to cover that. Okay, do you want to take a few moments now and cover both? Okay, sure. Yeah. So the um, Thera and eruption, which happened, well, the date is still debated, but let's say it happened around 1560 BC. Um, that had quite an impact on the east end of the island because at various sites, we see ashfall. So the Theron eruption would have been like the biggest uh, volcanic eruption um, in the world in the last several thousand years. And uh, it would have been a pretty cataclysmic event. It completely decimated the, the settlement. On the island of Thera itself, and uh, the ash uh, cloud would have been huge and went south and east from that island, and and dropped a lot of ash on uh, on this settlement at Palakastro because you know we know this because we find <laughs> find it in in various locations when we excavate, and um, in many cases it seems the inhabitants just kind of swept it up and um, dumped it and then and then moved on um, and sort of reconfigured their houses and, and maybe rebuilt in some cases. It looks like it might have had some impact on the water supply because new wells are dug uh, straight after uh, or as, as straight after as we can tell uh, archaeologically um, and one can imagine it might have affected um, crops and the, and the fields as well. And there's a lot of talk about a, a huge tsunami which, which might have hit the site. Now that this is quite interesting because it's perfectly feasible that a, that a big tsunami was uh, generated by this volcanic eruption. Um, and, you know, we're a coastal site for Lake Astro, so it, it could easily have, have swept up and, and damage the site. Although um, the evidence is really not that clear uh, currently. There have been a few publications suggesting a tsunami, but there's some other forms of evidence that suggest um, we just can't see such a, such a signature. So that's an interesting area of investigation, the, the nature of the Thiran eruption and, it, and its impact on the site. What, what is clear either way is that the inhabitants did carry on and uh, were thriving in the subsequent period. But then maybe 50, 60, 70 years later, there's uh, a, a, a destruction that hits the whole island. Um, it's not quite clear what's behind this destruction, but it seems to be potentially a result of conflict among different inhabitants on the island. And it's immediately after that that we talk of you know, the Mycenaean influence, however you want to, to view that. Then there's the whole question of where the site of Palikastro is. And that doesn't seem like a daft thing to say because there's these extraordinary extensive excavations which have revealed quite a lot of it. But we've never really investigated um, right 
on the beach and then into the sea because there are submerged buildings at the Lake Astro off the coast, maybe 40 meters uh, from the beach. And some of these are at a depth of about two meters that suggest um, that they surely must belong to the Bronze Age. And there's even some, some other indications of a Bronze Age date. Some, some pottery suggests this as well. So if we have submerged Bronze Age remains, let's say 40 meters out, and the sea level has changed, obviously, and the sea was even further out, then that may mean we have a whole undiscovered kind of segment of this town um, under the, the sand in the, in the shallows. Um, and that's something we're going to be investigating over the next couple of years with um, a team from the underwater effort of antiquities in Greece, uh, led by, um, in this project, Theodorkis Theodoulou. And that's, that's a very exciting new uh, venture, a new collaboration with the uh, Lasithi Epirate of Antiquities as well. And we're, we're really excited. We did some work this summer that was, that was really fruitful and, and will carry on for the next couple of years in this collaboration, uh, really trying to reveal the kind of underwater uh, cultural heritage of the site. Interesting stuff. You did a good job today in this conversation, Carl. And it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Uh, it, was, it was fun. Thanks a lot. So again, everybody, what I mentioned at the start was uh, a book as an example that Professor Knappett wrote, Aegean Bronze Age Art, Meaning in the Making. And also, I had mentioned that his team is completing a monograph on an excavation project from 2013 to 2015 on Palakistro. Uh, so that will act as a report on, on their findings. So I will drop links to both those items in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Carl and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.